Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, and welcome to the Tortoise Podcast. I'm Basha Cummings. I know a lot of you have been listening to my colleague Paul Caruana Galizia's remarkably moving series about his mother's murder. The response to his work has been incredible and will continue to follow the case in Malta. That story is still being written. But in the meantime, this weekly podcast is going to settle back into a slightly different rhythm. We're going to return to investigating one new story each week. And because what we do at Tortoise is slow news, that means we'll be bringing you stories about what's driving the news, not breaking news. That means we'll be taking the time to look at the bigger picture. So stay with us, because this week we're bringing you a truly shocking story from Cambridge University, one of the most prestigious institutions in the world. And we're telling you about a college with secrets. We've spent months investigating this at Tortoise, and our reporters here uncovered reams of documents and internal emails that revealed something truly disturbing. This is a story about allegations of sexual harassment and serious sexual assault. But it's, it's bigger than that too. It's about the culture on campuses. It's about power and influence. Our story starts in 2005. A tutor is accused of sexually assaulting a former student. Then, the tutor stays on at the college. Years later, as the college is still struggling to deal with the scandal of him remaining on campus, new and separate allegations of serious sexual assault are made against other people at the college. And the college doesn't deal with any of this well. Instead of supporting victims, it tries to silence them or ignore them. Reputation seems to come before welfare. So let's start at the beginning. Let's go back to 2005. And I need to say before we go ahead that in this episode, we talk about some topics that might be distressing. So first, meet Ellie Pymont. We brought her back to Cambridge to tell us her story. I remember before I came to my interviews, I sat on those steps to kind of like compose myself and <laughs> think and, you know try and get in and then this this college there's a really nice doorway there that's gombling keys that's all that side and then just at the bottom is the kind of the main building of trinity hall so it's it's really squished in amongst lots of other bigger colleges yeah it looks tiny yeah it's pretty small and then it goes down towards the river but yeah it's um 
it's, it's pretty small. Ellie studied at Cambridge University in the early 2000s in one of the smallest of its colleges called Trinity Hall. Ellie is the sort of woman many of us dream to be. She's worked as a homicide detective and has tackled serious crime across London. She's tough, she's engaging, and she talks about her university years with great fondness. It's where she met her best friends, and it's where she met the man who went on to become her husband. But something else happened to Ellie at Trinity Hall. It's where she met a man who was her director of studies, called Dr Peter Hutchinson. I was going up to see my friend Laura. I was a probationer PC at the time. I was really young. Yeah. How um, old were you at that point then? So it was before I was 24. 24. I think. So you were going to meet him at six o'clock before yeah, you were was meeting that a friend. Time. Yeah, early evening. And what happened then? I went into his rooms, and they were kind of you know like a little bit dimmed, that kind of thing, and. He kind of straight away was like, oh, you look lovely. And it was just, you know, it was a bit of a weird vibe, and I was like, I'm not sure. He poured me a drink, it was G&T. It's funny, like, even when I, even... Yeah, I can't put my bag down. So I think I was probably only in there about 20 minutes or something in the end. We were, like, having kind of small talk, chat kind of stuff. And I, I had, like a, like, a mouse map that was on his computer because it was a gift that we had sort of given him, like all of our, the kind of the language students when we left. I said something about it and he just grabbed my bum. Then, like, hard. I kind of battered his arm away and said, like, no. And then kind of went to sit down and said something like, oh, I can see I'm going to have to, like, watch you or something like that. And I was like, oh, why did I say that like that? That was something like, that just came out so craply. But then I was like, oh, God, right, well, that's, that's a shame how dare he like does he seriously think that I'm actually interested in him in that way and so I thought right well I'll just finish my drink and go never have anything to do with him again chalk that one down to experience and then I carried on trying to kind of like pretend that hadn't happened or just kind of have a bit of a chat whilst then finishing my drink and going right let's get out of here. How was he behaving after he had groped you? Like, kind of as if, as if he hadn't done anything, like, as if it was just, like, nothing. And then I was sort of sitting on the sofa, it was quite a low sofa, and he was kind of, just kind of slightly over the room a bit. Then he just kind of got up and, like, came over and kind of leaned over me and then was kind of, like, all, kind of, like, all over my hair or, like, trying to kind of pull me up towards him and kiss me and they're just, like, kind of, like, trying to kind of crouch away from him. I mean, I didn't think that lasted massively long, but he was just... Yeah, it was kind of making noises. And uh, and then then he went and sat, sat down again. You know, I was, at that point, I was like, rabbit headlights. I was like, trying to chuck my drink to back. But then, you know, still so constrained by politeness or in kind of like, like, I mustn't make a scene. Or, you know, I also need to try and leave with dignity and also not let him think that he's, like, scared me, got to me, made me feel weak, all of this stuff. So then I finished my drink and was like, right, get out of there, and I got my coat on. Then he had another go when I was, like, getting out the door. And again, he was kind of, like, trying to pull me towards, like, pulling me into him and arms around my side and back and in my hair and trying to kind of pull my face towards him and that kind of stuff and trying to put his, fa- put his face in mine and... 
and then I was at the point that I was like, I kind of like managed to sort of switch into a bit of a work mode, and I was like, Fuck he. and it kind of it dawned on me after the second one. I was like, he he doesn't actually care whether or not I want this to happen. In fact, you know, I, and I was just like, what? Wanted to get as much as he can before I managed to get away from him. So I ended up kind of like putting my arm up against his throat and kind of pushing him back, like giving him a bit like he obviously didn't realise that pushing his hand away and saying no that didn't work didn't deter him crouching trying to kind of curl up and not let him get near me on the sofa that wasn't there's like a police officer safety move about like where you use this kind of hard bit of your arm your forearm and and I can remember feeling his Adam's apple moving and then he had like this startled look on his face I think I said something like oh you've ruined our you've ruined our friendship or something like that I can't I think I said that I'm not not 100% how does it make you feel now, recounting? I'm like, I feel, you know, like the butterflies come back in the uncertainty and just, like, feel a bit, you know, like, cold and shivery. How dare he? Yeah. It was horrible. Mm-hmm. It's clearly still difficult for you to talk about. This is something that has stayed with you all this time. Yeah, I was thinking about it this morning when I was going for... I was having a run and I was thinking... And one of the things I always say about this is that before this happened and I don't want I don't want you to think that it's like because this hasn't defined my life at all but before this happened I really did feel invincible what he did in that is that I felt that that happened to me like really quick I kind of did not feel invincible after that Ellie's case went to trial, Dr Hutchinson was eventually acquitted. Ellie's story didn't happen in isolation, and that's where my colleagues Chris Cook and Ella Hill come in. They started investigating Trinity Hall last year, and they've exposed how, more than a decade later, multiple cases of sexual assault and harassment started to collide at the college. Hi Chris. Hello, hello. So tell me, how does Hutchinson fit into what you've been investigating? So after the case with Ellie Pymont, there were a few things that came up in the court case and in the aftermath that troubled people at Trinity Hall about Dr Hutchinson. So, for example, he talked in court about the circumstances when he would pat a woman's bottom. He held a party, a sort of tea party in the college to celebrate his acquittal with his supporters. And there, you know, was a lot of uneasiness. But he carried on teaching, he carried on being a full member of the community until 2015, when 10 students came forward and said that he had said things to them during supervisions, during, that's to say, small group teaching, that unsettled them. So he said, you know, do you want a big kiss to a woman whose birthday it was? He'd asked someone pointedly while he was teaching the metamorphosis whether something turned them on. And these are all things where, in Dr. Hutchinson's view, he was, you know, asking obviously rhetorical questions. But in the view of the these undergraduates, it you know, crossed a line and they felt uncomfortable with it. So the college came up with this idea that they would basically ban him from teaching undergraduates. This is 2015, right? They would ban him from teaching undergraduates and from contact with undergraduates, but he could carry on being a fellow. Dr. Hutchinson basically retires with this weird deal that he could basically turn up for dinner and college events so long as there are no undergraduates present. That deal is quite weird. And in 2017, he's invited to an event 
a lecture on the rooftop in French cinema. He turns up, the master is the person in charge of it. It's deemed, in retrospect, to have been a breach of the agreement. So December 2017, they effectively announce that Dr. Hutchinson has left the college. This is sort of where our story kind of starts. Because what they actually do around Christmas of 2017 is they completely screw up how they exclude Dr. Hutchinson. The master puts out a press release in which he says Dr. Hutchinson acknowledges that he sexually harassed students. Actually, what Dr. Hutchinson said was that he acknowledged that what he said was taken by other people to construe harassment. And he was sorry for that, but he didn't accept that himself. So a kind of classic non-apology apology. Yeah. Well, he was sort of saying, I understand that I upset people and I'm sorry for that and I wouldn't do it again. But he also didn't accept that it was harassment. They also... When they sort of said they were permanently excluding him from the college, they didn't actually have the power to do that. To do that, you have to have a vote of the governing body. They hadn't done that. Or Dr. Hutchinson would have to agree to that. And he hadn't. In his view, he'd agree to lay low until everything blew over and they could sort this out. So he was horrified. You know, this place where he'd taught since the mid-80s had thrown him out. And this is, if, if you like, the, the drumbeat, the backdrop to what happens in 2018. Because the governing body is continually meeting to discuss this guy who... In 2018, hasn't taught for several years. He's a guy who turns up to dinner from time to time. He's not a core member of the community. But what, what, what we can tell already from that case is that this is a college at one of the most prestigious universities in the world that doesn't really know how to deal with a tutor that is accused of sexual harassment and, and they're getting completely tangled over to keep him, to let him go, to let him have contact with students, to not. That's right. And there's not proper HR processes. They have, Trinity Hall has this enormous governing body for its size. You know, so there's basically a sort of 70 person committee that has to sort of discuss and decide on this stuff. And literally through the whole year of 2018, where they're continually discussing, what do we do? Can we expel him? If we expel him, will we get sued for libel for effectively saying he's a sexual harasser? All of this stuff keeps coming up and coming up, and it's just amateur hour. But the key thing about it is, from that moment he turns up to that lecture and excludes him from the college in late 2017, every twist and turn is being followed by the press. Like, it's become a public thing. And so this, this is no place... longer a private tangle. This is one that is being followed both in Cambridge and also by the BBC. That's right. So to put this in context, the uh, Dr. Hutchinson is excluded from the college in December 2017, just a few months after Harvey Weinstein is sort of exposed. Mm -hmm. So like it's at the absolute crest of the Me Too wave. I think the, the college basically doesn't know what to do with the facing the sort of incoming fire from alumni, from journalists, and it panics and screws up. But it doesn't just screw up this, like the, the Hutchinson screw up, this continual drumbeat, the continual neuralgia, this thing that comes up at every single meeting gets in their way of their ability to do anything else. And that's really where our story starts. That's right. So, so tell me where your investigation took you first. So we came across a really serious disciplinary case from inside the college. Three women came forward to the college and said that they'd been raped or sexually assaulted by an undergraduate at the college. The women we've called A, B and C. That's how they're referred to in one of the documents. The man is referred to similarly as D. So A is the first to come forwards. And she approaches a fellow at the college, a tutor. So that's someone with sort of special pastoral responsibilities, who's a guy who'll come up later, a guy called Nick Guyot, Dr. Nick Guyot. He's a historian. But he takes his tutorial 
tasks really seriously. So she writes to him and basically says, you know, I'm going to go and confront Dee. She reveals that actually she knows of two other women with similar stories. They, the three women collectively all decide not to go to the police, but two of them, A and B, do decide that they'll raise a disciplinary complaint within the college. So it's quite a traumatic process, and they felt quite discouraged from, from taking their complaint forward. There's a, another character we should introduce, a guy called William O'Reilly, who is the acting senior tutor of the college. He's the guy that's in charge of safeguarding. He is uh, Nick Guyatt's boss, effectively, as the top tutor. So let me just get this straight. So there, there are two women who decide to raise a disciplinary complaint mm-hmm. over rape or serious sexual assault, and they meet Nick Guyatt, who is supposed to sort of help them through this process. And That's they right. also come into contact with William O'Reilly, who's supposed to sort of oversee this process. Exactly. So both of these men teach there, and they've been there for quite a while. Both of them, that's yeah. right, yeah. And so there are things that start going wrong. There are hints of things that go wrong quite early on. So first of all, the process is massively delayed. It's supposed to take sort of 40 days. It takes more than 120. It's pushed way out into the summer. They first come forward in February, and that's not resolved until July. So it's a very long process. And if you think through when the academic year happens, that means they they are sitting exams while this thing is still hanging over them. They also, they feel discouraged. Dee's father said that he would consider, you know, bringing defamation proceedings if anyone to accuse his son of this stuff. And this is passed on to the women you know, in fact, this ridiculous threat, which would go nowhere. And then finally in July, when the hearing is finally convened to hear this case, things go even... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. More bizarrely wrong. So they'd always known that Dr. O'Reilly was very friendly with D. They're in a... They're in a secret dining society together, that kind of thing. So the man administrating this whole process is is friends with 
the person, the ma- the young man who's accused of? They are. It is a close relationship for a fellow and a student, but you know, there's nothing. There's no propriety implicit yeah. prior to this process. But yeah, there is a closer relationship that is perhaps comfortable. And during the hearing in July, Dr. O'Reilly actually presents evidence. He gets one of the women's first statements about what happened with track changes turned on, like the, the Microsoft Word function. So the bit where you can see who's made changes and when and what they change. He has that piece of information by dint of him being senior tutor. He gives it to the hearing. And then Dee's father, who is acting as Dee's basically lawyer, pushes him and gets Dr. O'Reilly to say that it shows that Nick Guyer, so the guy who had been supporting the women, had changed the tone and perhaps the intent of her statement. That position is supported as well by the college's mental health counsellor, who gives evidence saying that the women behaved atypically for women who were making these allegations. We should point out that that mental health counsellor, who since left the college, hadn't actually counselled the women since they come forward with the these allegations. So after all of that, what did this dis- disciplinary panel conclude? So they concluded that because of these sort of questions about about whether the women effectively really meant their statements, in part because of that, they they couldn't come to a conclusion. I don't mean, just to be clear, I don't mean they acquitted D. Their job was to come to a verdict on the balance of probabilities about who, whether this event was likely to have taken place or not, and they effectively just declined to. Wow. And so to put ourselves just in the position of the two young women, have either of them communicated to you how they were feeling at that time after so many months of waiting and trying to go through this process? Well, the, the process was enormously opaque. So actually at the time, it wasn't clear, right, that how this sort of odd testimony come forward from Dr O'Reilly and from, from the mental health counsellor. They didn't really realise how things had gone. They wouldn't find that out for quite some time. One of them actually wrote to the college and asked them to sort of look over again at it. They sort of had an appeal, which was, you know, done and they upheld the no verdict verdict. But it wasn't really till later when they realised how corrupted the process had been that they, they really got angry about it all. I mean, it's amazing to hear you walk through this case and the, and the process that these young women had to go through. But I suppose if we zoom out, the bigger picture here is that at this moment in time, Trinity Hall was under huge scrutiny in the national press for allowing a tutor, Dr Hutchinson, to stay at the college while there were concerns about his behaviour and sexual harassment. And that's important to remember with how they dealt with this particular case. But that's not it, is it, Chris? Because there's another case that then comes into view that you found out in your investigation, which again adds another layer of, I have to say, shock when you hear what else is happening at the same time. So talk us through that. So the story we've just heard, really the one about A, B, C and D, starts, if you like, in February, March 2018 and runs until July 2018. That's the period over which A and B are bringing their complaint against D. In the middle of that, in May 2018, a student comes forward with an allegation about Dr. William O'Reilly. So the guy who's running the ABCD case is accused himself of sexually assaulting a student. A serious sexual assault that's supposed to have taken place in Dr. O'Reilly's room in the college. Now, I should point out, of course, Dr. O'Reilly denies all of that. Just to be really clear here, 
Dr William O'Reilly fiercely denies the allegations and says that John's account has been inconsistent and says that his motivations were malicious. He did attend a voluntary interview with the police, but he was never arrested or charged and no further action was taken by the police. But this allegation is brought to the college uh, by the student through his tutor and this information is immediately passed on to the master of the college. This is someone we've not talked about before. So that's um, the guy who kind of runs it. He's the sort of supreme... Yeah, a guy called Dr Jeremy Morris, who is a Church of England clergyman. And he has brought, at the very beginning of May, this piece of information by a tutor who tells him what the allegation is. The master of the college, Dr Morris, goes off and gets legal advice. We know that Dr Morris then doesn't meet this guy who's made the allegation, who we're calling John, until June, basically a month later. He you know, doesn't take any action then. We know that when he meets John, he says to John, you have to go to the police about this. So John does do that. He goes to the police. The astonishing thing about this is we're already a month on from the college finding out about the allegation. And Dr O'Reilly has at no point, according to Dr O'Reilly at least, been approached about this. He's not been told there's an allegation. He's been left teaching. He's been left continuing to do you know, basically one-on-one tuition with students. In July, in the summer, he runs that disciplinary process, you know, the, the one with A, B, C and D. He testifies on behalf of D. He remains, in fact, the, the sort of key safeguarding lead for the college throughout this period. When A and B were told that their complaint had not been upheld by the disciplinary panel, it was Dr O'Reilly they were told they should go and talk to if they're feeling vulnerable. This is all quite weird stuff, right? Dr O'Reilly's account is he doesn't find out that the allegation even exists until October 2018, and he only finds out because the police come and knock on his door. So that's five months after the master learns about the allegation, William O'Reilly learns from the police. Yes, that's right. So wow. Dr O'Reilly himself, we do know Dr O'Reilly does then stand down some of his students. He does re- resile from teaching some students while this is being dealt with. Not all of them, we have to say. We know that he kept teaching while he was under investigation in October and November. We have evidence of that. That brings us to late November, when the police basically decide you know, there's no further action to take. Sorry, so the police decide that they are not going to take on this case. So the police wrote to John in late November and told him that they wouldn't be taking any further action. They invited him to get in touch if he found more evidence, but they weren't able to... They didn't think it was a prosecutable case. Why did the master leave it for five months... And why was William O'Reilly allowed to keep teaching? We don't know. We've got this references to this legal advice. I should also point out that when you talk to other people in Cambridge about this, they're astonished that any college would behave like this. But actually, in a sense, what happens afterwards is even more surprising and more shocking. Because it's one thing to say that you won't hold an internal investigation or a disciplinary investigation while the police are gathering evidence. What's more surprising is that the college, even after the police had finished their work, declined to look into the case. Now, it's important to stress that you might think, well, hang on, the police can't find anything, the college won't. The college process is not looking to convict him of a crime. It's asking the question, has this person done anything that should give us cause for concern? Have they behaved unprofessionally in some way? Mm. Um, And they only need to operate on the balance of probabilities. They don't need to operate beyond reasonable doubt. 
So you've talked us through this remarkable story where three cases are colliding with each other in various different ways. There's the case of Dr Hutchinson, which is playing out in the press. There's the case of A and B and their allegation against D and the disciplinary procedure there. And then there's the allegation against William O'Reilly. How do each of these cases resolve Not well, bluntly. So the first case is Dr Hutchinson. In that case, what basically happens is it becomes clear that the college leadership come to the view that partly because he's their friend in some cases, in other cases because they're worried the college is going to get sued either for a breach of contract or for libel if they throw him out formally. They basically decide that what they should do is let Peter Hutchinson come back to the college, still not able to spend time with undergraduates, but, you know, he can come to dinner. They literally actually... They come to an agreement with him about which dinner he is and isn't allowed to go to. It's very Cambridge. It's very Cambridge. Um, the um, one curiosity is we discovered actually that, that Dr. Hutchinson writes books under, a, or at least one book under a pseudonym, the pseudonym being Barry Abel. And the book we found was one called uh, First Time Ooh La La. Um, oh dear. Yeah, it's, it's pretty striking. Um, I don't think it would have helped his case had it come up while they were considering uh, his future at the college because there's a lot of discussion of breasts of undergraduates. There's also Ellie Pymont's case is discussed in very uncoded terms. He taunts Ellie in the book. It's pretty extraordinary. And this is something that you revealed while you were investigating yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, we sort of came across it. So the we the the cover of the book is of a stockinged leg, um, which is actually a Trinity Hall student's leg, a friend of Dr. Hutchinson who Wow. Yeah, I should point out uh, that Dr. Hutchinson po- says that the book is totally fictional. You shouldn't read anything into it. But there is a court case where the main protagonist, who is called Peter, is arrested for sexual assault. There's a court case that collapsed, like with Ellie's case. You know, the whole thing is it's quite wow. hard not to read into it. Okay, so so the next one, the case of A, B, C, and their allegation against their fellow student D. So we mentioned earlier that the college. A disciplinary panel decided not to come to a conclusion in their case because the evidence of an effect had been contaminated by the fact that, to use the words of one of the witnesses, uh, Nick Guyatt, a tutor at the college, was acting out his political biases by encouraging these women to make these complaints. So after that, that disciplinary panel actually wrote a letter to the college asking them to investigate Nick Guyatt. So Nick Guyatt was taken out of his position as a tutor, so he was effectively had quite a big pay cut because that's a paid role. He was not allowed to take part in tutorial, so pastoral work. And he was investigated by an external lawyer for six months to check about whether his politics had contaminated his support for these women. We should point out it's a really weird allegation in lots of ways, not least of which is that they never actually asked the women about the evidence that was presented at that JMC. They never went back to them and said, do you still stand by these statements? We just, we, you know, we just want to check that you don't feel pressured into doing this by a, by a college employee. They just decided, no, no, evidence is contaminated, can't, can't rule in on it, you know, and let's get this guy. And at the end of this whole process, how did the women feel? I mean, they only found out about the full details of it, basically, in the summer of last year. And the, I mean, really I mean, angry undermined. One of the things that sort of comes up again and again is this sort of sense that they trusted the college's good intentions. They thought the college was going to look after them. So they took the college's advice. You don't need to bother coming to this hearing. They didn't realise that at this hearing, they would have their statements effectively 
undermined. They didn't know that the college were going to pursue their tutor. You know, they had given you know no sense of it. The the whole thing is pretty strange. So, what did the investigations Nick Guyot find? So he's completely exonerated. He's not restored by the college to his old post. He's not allowed to go back to being a tutor. His the money he's lost from this investigation and from having to hire lawyers is never is never restored to him. And actually, at the end of 2019, the end of the academic year, he just quits the college and just gets out of there. His friends are really clear that this is, you know, basically in rage over the Hutchinson stuff and it's in rage over the way that these women were, were treated in this case. OK, so finally, what happened in the case of Dr O'Reilly? How did that conclude? So the police investigation into Dr O'Reilly ends at the end of November... But the college at that point, which could have been forgiven for saying, actually, you know, while there's a police investigation, we're not going to do anything beyond preventative action or precautionary action. The college decides not to do anything. The master just decides that's the end of the matter. So William O'Reilly is still at Trinity Hall. Yeah, he he withdrew from teaching after our article appeared, both at a faculty level, so for students of other colleges and within Trinity Hall. But, you know. Sorry, just to be clear then, because it's obviously really complicated. So in the case of Dr. Hutchinson, after everything, he was actually reinstated to his role. That's right. In the case of William O'Reilly, who was the subject of a serious allegation, he was allowed to continue teaching and remains at Trinity Hall. Yeah. And in the case of Nick Guyatt, the, the tutor who was supporting two young women who said they were victims of a serious sexual assault, he's the one who in the end leaves the college. Yeah, I mean, Peter Hutchinson is sort of um, this running sore that keeps going and going and going and actually isn't resolved until November 2019, which is when he resigns from the college once and for all and cuts his ties and gives up on ever becoming a fellow again, basically because the BBC report on the fact that he's been let back in. Wow. Chris, this is a an amazing story and... A complicated one, and I know it's taken you quite a long time to be able to report a lot of this. But if we zoom out from Trinity Hall and we we look at the bigger picture, what does this story tell us about campuses, justice on campus, and I suppose the Me Too movement as it sort of spreads possibly towards academia? So there are things about Trinity Hall that make it weird and unusual, right? So it's tiny. It's part of Cambridge, so it's a you know the strange collegiate university thing. But the size of it is an accelerant. It's not the cause. The things that make Trinity Hall fail are things that are common across lots of campuses. So the power imbalances between students and staff, the prevalence of particularly middle-aged men uh, in leadership roles who are unfamiliar and uncomfortable with lots of the issues that we've been talking about. These are all things that you see right the way across academia. And the culture of academia is, you know, surprisingly uniform about lots of this stuff. Thanks, Chris. We've all seen how the Me Too movement has swept through the world of celebrity and the media But maybe, just maybe, this story might be the beginning of a reckoning on campus. So since we published this investigation on the Tortoise website and in our app, lots of things have been happening at Trinity Hall. The master of the college has announced that he'll be stepping back while an investigation goes on. William O'Reilly, the senior tutor, and the vice master of the college have both announced that they're going to be doing the same. But that's, that's not the end of the story for us. We're going to keep reporting on this. 
And if you've got a story to tell us about your own experiences on campus, you can get in touch with Chris Cook in confidence. You can reach him at tips at tortoisemedia.com. And if you'd like to read more about our investigation into campus justice, you can become a member of Tortoise and support our journalism. Go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use the code POD50, that's P-O-D 50, to get membership for half our usual price. See you next week. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill? If it's possible, how are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.